to the finest crew in Starfleet. Engage. Welcome to a very special episode, a holiday episode of The Greatest Generation. It's a Star Trek podcast by two guys who are a little bit embarrassed to have a Star Trek podcast. I'm Adam Pranica. <laughs> I'm Ben Harrison, and this is not even going to be about Star Trek, is it? I think uh, I think it's canonical us in the way that this is sort of a, this is an embarrassing admission of mine. This is, this. This film that we're about to cover uh, is my favorite holiday movie, Ben, and it. <laughs> and uh, I'm not sure if many people know that. It's not a very popular choice. It makes me wonder what your favorite holiday movie or movies are for the month of December. Do you have any? Die Hard 2, obviously. The, the best of the Die Hard movies. <laughs> I'll die on that hill. <laughs> um. I feel like Die Hard 2 is when Die Hard realized it was Die Hard. Die Hard 2, uh, also canonical trek for the involvement of one column Meany. Yeah. As, as random airline pilot. Yeah. We have started a tradition of watching uh, a very Murray Christmas on Christmas Day. Do you see what Do I see? see? What I see? In, in my newly formed family, me, my wife, and my dog. Oh. And it only occurred to me a week ago that it's a pun on a very Merry Christmas. <laughs> like, that just totally went went past me, and it uh, it just, like, popped into my head, like, oh, that's what that is. Oh. <laughs> Wordplay that's so tack sharp, uh, it just goes through you completely. I don't know. It's, it's good because it's not, uh, it's not sentimental in a schmaltzy way it's sentimental in an affecting way and uh i've yet to see it maybe I oh it's, see it's, it. it's terrific there's like the the highlight is when uh when clooney shows up and sings a song called santa claus wants some lovin oh boy it's it's a real treat you just sprinkle on a little clooney makes everything better yeah, I mean, I we do as much Hanukkah as Christmas, if not more, in my uh, in my family now. So, uh, so it's kind of like the one really Christmassy thing that that my wife will buy into. <laughs> right. <laughs> I've, I've uh, prepared myself a holiday beverage here, Adam. I'm having some uh, delicious spiked eggnog with some uh, kind of fancy spiced rum called Buchmann. Oh yeah. This is a uh, a spiced rum from Haiti. So it's uh, uh, the French kind of rum, and then it's spiced with wild spices from around Haiti, or épice sauvage, as the as the uh, bottle says. And um, it's kind of a cool company because they're like getting Haitians back on their feet after a long series of natural and man-made disasters have inflicted themselves on that country. Uh, you and I on a very similar wavelength, W slash R slash T, holiday cocktails. I'm also drinking a spiced eggnog, though far lower in class than yours. Um, <laughs> not going to come as a surprise that I don't consume that which is dairy. So uh, I, have a, I have a tasty almond milk eggnog from the uh, Califia Company, Ooh. which makes a very good almond beverage. And I have used Costco spiced rum. <laughs> as, as the mixer maybe uh you know because our, our our drinks are using such different in quality ingredients we can talk about the the preferred ratio ben i like a 
straight half and half rum and eggnog. Is that wow. is that the correct dosage in your mind? You really got to stir a half and half eggnog, by the way. Like it's a little salad dressing you. Right. I just put like a ounce and a half pour of the rum into the bottom of my mug and then topped it off with eggnog. So I don't really know what the ratio is, but it's nowhere close to half and half. Have you ever made your own eggnog? You, I, I don't want you to take this the wrong way, but you seem like a man uh, whose culinary prowess would make that an on-the-table proposition. Oh, you, sure. You would have I, made some eggnog. I, am, I was a little bit embarrassed not to be making this particular eggnog, but I just couldn't justify all the... Uh, <laughs> All the ingredients for me sitting by myself at one <laughs> forty-five p.m. on a Monday, <laughs> which is when we were recording this show. Well, I think uh, I think the spirit of this show, this one's going out to everyone out there by themselves on maybe a Monday or any other day during the holiday season. Yeah, I think that uh, this is something we wanted to do because uh, we are filled with warmth by the generosity of our viewers and wanted to do something special for them. I think it doesn't take much of an excuse for me to want to do a weird show with you, Ben. It's been a crazy year for us. Uh, I think there's been a lot that we could say that we're thankful for. But yeah. uh, I think one way that I have enjoyed an otherwise uh, unenjoyable year has been uh, doing weird shows with you. So with that in mind, what do you say we get started on... A funny little horror comedy from 1984. <laughs> it's Gremlins. Ben, the, the horror comedy genre, not exactly stocked with a ton of great films, but one of the films in the genre was released on the exact same day, and uh, that movie was Ghostbusters. They both came out on June 8th. Really? Why would you ever release Gremlins on June 8th? That's my question. That is a release date that I would never have ever guessed. Uh. Yeah. Uh, Gremlins came in number two at the box office with a bullet. Uh, <laughs> pretty, pretty brave showing, I thought. I don't think the studio expected too much out of this one. Yeah. I mean, it's a weird movie. <laughs> I mean, it it does have a lot of... DNA in common with Ghostbusters, I think. The kind of yeah. evil that is more mischievous than terrifying right. uh, aspect. The uh, the kind of like practical puppet-based special effects. Um, but yeah, like the idea that it came out in the middle of the summer is pretty astonishing. One of the things I really appreciate about this movie is that there is nothing sacred in it at all. Like, uh -huh. it is almost totally nihilist. It it makes fun of everything. And I really enjoy that. You know, like in a holiday season that's full of schlock and saccharin, this is a hard right into into the bushes, I think. It's, it's also the rare, like, studio Christmas picture that isn't trying to push a specific idea of, like, the meaning of Christmas yeah. or any meaning at all. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this uh, this film opens on a scene that might as well have uh, used all the same sets as Big Trouble in Little China. <laughs> it's kind of like film noir private eye vibes too, because yeah. 
We've got a voiceover from Randall Peltzer. Let me introduce myself. My name is Ho. Saying oh. <laughs> Peltzer's the name. <laughs> <laughs> Which always like is like is, is that because we already know this character and love him, and that's kind of like his catchphrase, or like why did you choose to to introduce him that way? Movie. <laughs> this movie is basically bookended by Peltzer's captain's log. Yeah. But like, is he working on his own documentary? Like, <laughs> like throughout the film, it really changes things if you consider Peltzer sort of the narrator of his own story, and maybe he's writing a book or something. Well, nobody's got a story like this one. Nobody. The voice work of Hoyt Axton here is amazing. He, I love his voice. I love him on camera. He looks like a spiral cut ham shoved into uh, a, like a flannel suit. He's just a beautiful, like family patriarch of the 80s. Yeah, he's that's, canonical that's 80s dad. Yeah, yeah. This is uh, so set in Chinatown, New York Chinatown, I think, to be specific. It's the kind of like fever dream of white people who are scared to go to Chinatown version of Chinatown. It's it's the hustle and bustle of a city that rural people fear. It's the neon signs that can't be understood by only English speech speakers. And then for some reason, a car crash like <laughs> into a sign. <laughs> yeah. Is that uh, really necessary? <laughs> <laughs> so... Uh, Randall meets a uh, a young boy who takes him down into his grandfather's shop, and this is kind of a a store in name only. It's just a room full of uh, curiosities from the Far East. And um, rather than do much shopping, Randall Peltzer leaps right into the pitch for a device that he's invented. The bathroom buddy. It's the invention of the century, friends. It eliminates the, the need to carry heavy luggage. Because he is not the private eye that he reads as in costume. He's trying to hawk his Swiss Army bathroom. <laughs> <laughs> I think he says the name Bathroom Buddy before it is revealed what the Bathroom Buddy is, and, <laughs> and my mind really raced in a lot of different directions. I, should, I don't know if I said this, but th- I, this was the first time I'd ever seen this film. <sighs> That is a fact about you that continues to shock me. <laughs> well, now as, I've seen it. As this is a foundational movie for me, I think as as soon as I was old enough to see a movie, I saw this movie. Wow. There's some like there's some things in this that would be upsetting for a little kid, I think. Oh yeah. Were <laughs> you were you scared of it before you loved it? Yes. Uh <laughs> for reasons we'll get into later, mostly that uh, for a Christmas movie or really any other movie, it's almost ex- unspeakably violent. Yeah. What do you think about the viability of the bathroom buddy, Ben? I feel like on the surface, great idea. Yeah, I think that the the problem that it ignores is that if you are shaving or brushing your teeth, you don't want a brick of shit attached <laughs> to the tool that you're using to do that. You ever drive a rental car where they have like the big fat steering wheel, like like steering wheels are varying in in gauge now mm-hmm. like in how much hand it takes to hold it yeah i i'm with you man this is like if your if your toothbrush was a rolling pin <laughs> it's i like the toothbrush is a concern the the razor blade <laughs> is a a, sh- a showstopper you know like yeah. that's that is not going to work <laughs> 
So the uh, proprietor of this shop is uh, Mr. Wing. Uh, was this the actor that played the grandfather in the the Three Ninjas or whatever? I think so. He is very much of that guy. Yeah. He's in a ton of stuff. Yeah. Like, this whole scene is super racist, right? <laughs> the fact that every time the camera pans and lands on something, there's a gong hit is astonishing to me. <laughs> like, even in the 80s, I can't believe it. Look, it's not right, and I think you and I agree about that, but I'm asking this as devil's advocate, not necessarily because I believe it myself, but, like, can you front load enough positive stereotype into a depiction to offset the more awful stereotypes that that may also be depicted in a film or or anything else i think we should put a pin in that because this this guy comes back spoiler alert and i feel like the the, like the time to talk about that might be end of movie part of the podcast i'm into that but uh the thing he finds is a box, and it is, like, not revealed what is in the box initially. Um, and he offers $200 cash on the barrel head. And a Casio. For this box with a cooing creature living inside of it. And uh, the grandfather uh, says, I'm sorry. Mogwai, not for sale. And so uh, Daddy Peltzer leaves, and uh, the little boy that... Uh, that brought him in uh, runs out and catches him in the alleyway and says like, Hey dude, my, gr- what my grandfather fails to recognize is that we have to pay rent. So, <laughs> uh, I've, uh, made an executive decision to go ahead and sell you this mysterious box with a creature in it. And, uh, you give me that 200 bucks and we're going to be good. It makes me wonder if little wing doesn't quite understand the danger that's inside the box. If he's so willing to sell it to, I mean, they don't even try to hide the fact that uh, that Mr. Peltzer's an idiot. No. <laughs> He's basically the most dangerous person to give this to. I gotta have him. He's incredible. Yeah. I mean, the <laughs> the scene ends with the boy, like, explaining the, th- the three rules to the dad. And the dad really just kind of, like, blows him off. Like, yeah, yeah, whatever, kid. Like, don't feed him after midnight. Got it. You get a an image you don't get too often, which is the slow-mo effect applied to a piece of film that wasn't shot to be slowed down. Yeah, this is a shot... Uh, uh, the, the post-production slow-mo is something you see a lot in, especially movies of this era. And I always wonder if it's done intentionally as like an aesthetic choice or because they wish they had it in slow-mo and this is good enough the other like quintessential example of this for me is the scene in empire strikes back where luke goes into the cave and is fighting vader in the like in like the imagined you know the place that is strong with the dark side or whatever yeah, and in that scene and in this one, there's a dreamlike quality to it that makes me think that it was intentional. But you know, as I mean, I'm sure I'm sure you've run into this problem just like I have. Like when you think after the fact that oh yeah, that would look better in slow motion, and you decide to apply that effect to it, uh, you get this effect instead a lot yeah. of times. Yeah, it's uh, it's some process where they create in between frames for. Uh for you know cuz you shoot film at 24 frames a second and if you want 
slow-mo, you have to shoot more than 24 frames a second and then play it back at 24 frames. So right. this is maybe half speed, so maybe they're just doubling each frame or something like that. Gang, you're rolling with Rockin' Ricky Rialto, the voice of Kingston Falls, USA. One thing I really like about early 80s movies of any genre is like the big song splash title moment. (laughs) And this movie really has that with, I think, my favorite Christmas song of all time, Darlene Loves Christmas Baby, Please Come Home. I think... Uh, you could do a lot worse with your time than look up every David Letterman uh, Christmas episode where he has Darlene Love play this song live for him. It's uh, it's amazing, and she's amazing, and uh, what a great holiday song choice for this movie. It's almost entirely the opposite feeling of what is to follow, yeah. truly. And uh, and it reveals Kingston Falls, the the town of Kingston Falls, which is the exact same studio playset as Hill Valley yeah, from the Back to the Future movies that will uh, come a couple years later. It's really like hard to ignore how much Hill Valley it is. Ever since I noticed that for the first time, I've thought that Gremlins was canonical Back to the Future, and <laughs> you can easily make the case for that if you think that uh, during Marty's time travel adventures, he's not only traveling through time, but also traveling through like alternate dimensions. Like, oh. it's easy to conceive of a of a world in which Marty changes the past in such a way that he introduces the Gremlins universe to Hill Valley. Now, That's Adam, what I think, anyway. The problem with this theory is that <laughs> there wouldn't be the time travel paradox where his sister and brother start to disappear on the photograph if he's in a different dimension in addition to a different time what my theory presupposes is maybe that doesn't matter (laughs) (laughs) so this is a real like a real hard tone change and uh, we are introduced to billy who's trying to get his (laughs) his flocked vw beetle started and uh Unfortunately, Billy can't get his car started, so he and his dog, Barney, are going to walk to work, but uh, not before their neighbor, Mr. Futterman, comes by and explains that it's because... Goddamn foreign cars, they always freeze up on you. Dick Miller, another classic that guy, uh, just <laughs> Dick Millering this whole thing up. That's a Kentucky harvester. With his Futterman vibes. God, he's so great. Our introduction to Billy in this scene is that he's sort of a bumbler, uh, he's sort of a tryhard. You know, by introducing a guy who's late to work right off the jump, like, you're sort of asking an audience to root for an underdog. Mm-hmm. And that's that's who Billy is throughout. So he hustles his way to his bank job, and it's there where we meet Kate. He's played by Phoebe Kate. Oh, man. In what is clearly peak Kate. Yeah, like Phoebe Cates is so much Phoebe Cates in this movie that she is still distractingly attractive despite the fact that she's wearing a tea koozie (laughs) instead of a shirt. (laughs) She's so hard to look at at times that like Billy has a hard time looking at her. Like she totally devastates him just with her company and her kindness. Yeah. 
Cross your teeth. I think there are a few moments in this film where like real nice love is shown and the relationship between Kate and Billy is one of those examples. Like the people who love each other in this movie really love each other. Yeah, it's true. The uh, The feelings are heartfelt and uh, you don't ever feel like the, the love is, is um, you know, has strings attached or whatever. This bank scene unpacks a lot of shit on us because we get uh, the introduction of the judge, the smarmy Judge Reinhold Gerald character. And we also get the intro to Mrs. Deagle, who on her way to the bank with her broken snowman figurine runs into some townspeople who ask her for a little bit of relief. I think she's their landlady, and uh, they're asking if they can pay the rent a couple days late or something like that. And she is just not even fucking having it. If the Wicked Witch music that is playing when <laughs> when uh, the camera pans up from her feet as she walks to the bank wasn't enough uh, <laughs> to, to, to tell you that she is the villain of the movie... <laughs> This uh, this not letting somebody get a little break on, on the rent being due really drives that home. And then she cuts in line at the bank. So she's, she's three for three on being a bad lady and somebody who will definitely see their comeuppance by the end. <laughs> Mrs. Deagle's musical theme is written by Primus. <laughs> That's what I think. <laughs> She's pissed at uh, at Billy because Billy's dog Barney broke her imported lawn ornament of a of a snowman. I'm terribly sorry. Almost perfectly decapitated is this snowman. Yeah, but it really begs the question: Why import a snowman when you can just make a snowman? Mrs. Deagle cops to uh, ordering it from Bavaria. <laughs> what are the chances that this is a Nazi snowman bin? <laughs> and that the darkness in Mrs. Deagle is far more dark than than is ever fully illuminated. I want your dog. Yeah, I guess I uh we'd have to like look at it frame by f- frame when it crashes on the floor if there's <laughs> right. a uh, if there's a stamp with a swastika on the inside of it. <laughs> uh, she threatens the dog in a way that is like totally insane right like you would be not just asked to leave the bank but also like they would say sorry we don't want you as a customer anymore we're closing your accounts you just you just came in here and threatened the life of one of our employees dog it's a scene that tells the viewer how much power mrs deagle has in town as the big rich widow sort of messed up (laughs) the law doesn't apply to mrs deagle no she's above it the other hang that we have in this movie is that uh is that uh everybody likes this irish pub for uh for after work hangs and kate phoebe kate's character has a has a second job working as a waitress there uh when she's not working at the bank dory's informs everything that i ever wanted in a dive bar after this like i was too young to understand how comfortable dory's would be (laughs) to any adult who would be a patron of it but god every time i watch this movie dory's is it dory's is the only place i want to go to have a drink it's it's kind of the 
the platonic ideal of a of a town watering hole in a lot yeah. of ways. Yeah, it's unfortunate that they rep Killian's red in the in the neon sign on the window. I'm not going to hold that against him. It looks like they have a number of taps. You don't have to just drink Killian's if you don't want to. Well, <laughs> Killian's is like one of the only really good Irish beers. Really? <laughs> well, now I think we might agree on that. Disagree on that, Ben. What what Irish beers do you like? You know me, man. What are you uh, a harp blogger? I th- you know I am because oh. I'm a quantity beer man. Give me give me four harps to your one Killian's. Killian's is the only one with any taste in it. Uh, I'm not going to argue with that. I think we're on the same side of that argument. <laughs> You've changed, <laughs> man. This is um, a scene that, like, for whatever reason, Gerald has followed Billy to Dory's afterwards and is, like, just flipping him shit about his life. Like, hey, Billy, uh, you know, I'm VP at the bank, and I couldn't help but notice that your career is a garbage pile. You still live at home. Uh, Kate's never going to love you because I have cable TV at home. Judge Reinhold is, like, putting Julian Bashir-style smarmy moves on Phoebe Kate's. Kate. You haven't seen my new apartment. I haven't seen your old apartment. And she's not into it. Come on, we're talking cable. One of my core beliefs, Ben, I don't know if I've told you this before, is that Judge Reinhold and D.B. Sweeney are the same person. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And no one has ever been able to dispute that. You've never seen them in in, uh, the same room at the same time. Uh, I think D.B. Sweeney can cash Judge Reinhold's checks and vice versa. (laughs) Okay. This movie definitely takes a side against the wealthy in in a way that I more by the day admire. <laughs> <laughs> so after this we get to see a little bit of Billy's home life and uh because uh his dad is the inventor we met in the first scene, it, the the kitchen especially is full of of uh time-saving devices like egg breaker and orange juice sprayer all over the place. Um, <laughs> these, uh, what, what Randall Peltzer has effectively done is weaponized the kitchen. <laughs> it is it really a nightmare. Has. Yeah. Every, every, uh, every inch of the countertop is taken up by something that just wants to take your finger off so badly. We meet his mom, Lynn, who is uh, a real sweetheart. And then Pop comes home and, uh, and gives him... It's a puppy, isn't it? The Mogwai, the, uh, the mysterious creature that he was buying at the Chinese store there at the beginning. And uh, I would say that um, the way that... Billy interacts with this creature really, really jumped out at me because he has a very like nurturing and loving affect with it, like right off the bat. Yeah. Which struck me as being kind of like adventurously counter to the kind of prevailing idea of what masculinity should be at at the time. Well put. Cuddling it like a baby, which just doesn't you know, like, that's not what dudes do kind of thing. He also totally innocently has a kid friend in <laughs> in Pete, played by Corey Feldman. Like, I don't know. I, I, had a, I had a little neighbor kid when I was growing up, and you're friends with the little neighbor kid. Like, yeah, you got to be friends with that little neighbor kid. Exactly. So uh, 
much more seriously and with uh, you know much more gravity, the dad explains to Billy the the rules of Mogwai ownership, which is don't expose it to bright lights, never let it get any water on or near it, don't even let it drink water, and never feed it after midnight. And and he he really like he really drives these points home in no uncertain terms as Billy to follow these rules and. Uh, you know, the movie is just like winking at us. Like, I wonder what will happen when all of these rules get broken in succession. <laughs> to underscore one of those rules almost immediately, Lynn pulls out a flash camera. No, no. What happened? Look, while it on the one hand breaks one of the cardinal gremlin rules, it also breaks a major photographical rule, Ben. There is no way that picture is going to look great. No. It's a garbage picture, Lynn. It's going to be a garbage picture. You know, it was an era where we didn't have immediate feedback. I feel like everybody is on board with these with these rules now, but yeah. because of even the amount of time that a Polaroid took to develop, like it seemed like a just very large percentage of the population was a little unclear on what <laughs> what good photograph <laughs> technique meant. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so many lessons yeah. in this film. The scene that follows is the is the Peltzer orange juice scene the next morning, which is tantamount to putting a Claymore mine in your kitchen. <laughs> a Claymore mine filled with oranges. <laughs> Poor Billy gets up in the morning readying a, uh, a delicious glass of orange juice to go with his breakfast, inserts one single orange into the hopper of the Peltzer orange juicer, and... His entire kitchen is destroyed. Yeah, it's like a it's like a TV commercial for like bounty paper towels or something <laughs> level of mess in the kitchen. I would burn down my house if this <laughs> happened in my kitchen. There's no going back from this. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh it's a real hot mess and uh it's terrifying. I feel like every movie with an inventor up to and including Pee-wee's Big Adventure, centers around the idea that the kitchen should be full of ways to break eggs and prepare breakfast foods. Right. Uh, Honey, I Shrunk the Kid, I feel like, has that also. Is that just trying to solve the problem of the not eating breakfast thing that that we've been conditioned to believe is a thing? I'm, man, Wallace and Gromit uh, have that too? Right. Man. So many movies. Why are inventors so laser focused on solving the problem of breakfast? It's also really inventor shaming in in all of these <laughs> scenes and in all of these examples. Like we make the inventor to be this idiot, but yeah. we need inventors, Ben, and we need them to to see their ideas through the inventor shaming that we get so often in popular media. I feel like the opposite of that though whenever <laughs> Randall Peltzer is on screen because one of the things I love about his character is that he always has a pitch up his sleeve like yeah. even when his son is like just like coming in to be like hey what's up dad he's like now listen you you got a business meeting big big important pitch to the client you've forgotten to shave what do you do shoot the hostage <laughs> it's like <laughs> what do you think the sex ed talk is like from from dad peltzer like do you think he's able to talk in any other language besides inventor pitch <laughs> 
Now look, you've pulled up to a date with Kate. You're about to pick her up from Dory's. But you're looking to your wallet and you don't have a condom. Under normal circumstances, you are in trouble. That's why I've invented the condom buddy. <laughs> the condom buddy rides shotgun in your imported German vehicle. <laughs> Ready to dispense 30 to 40 condoms at a time at the push of a button. I thought you were going to say that he invented coming on the tits. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> I think, if anything, uh, Randall's into facials, given how many times he takes that shaving cream gag to the dome. <laughs> yeah, and what and what he's subjected his own son to in the kitchen. <laughs> <laughs> it turns out his invention is just his weird, <laughs> the weird embodiment of his kink. Corey Feldman comes over to drop off their Christmas tree, and he is, he's been forced by the Christmas tree lot that he works at to wear a Christmas tree costume, <laughs> uh, which is a super inconvenient costume to wear if you have to do any kind of manual labor, which is what his job is. So, <laughs> so uh, he convinces Billy to let him leave the costume there at, uh, at the house, and he's going to go back and tell his boss that you know he got beat up for it or something. Um, this is uh, imp- an important moment to call out because that tree costume is going to come in handy later. <laughs> it's so cruel what what Pete's boss makes him do. It's not going to sell any more trees, having a kid in a tree costume. No. It's just going to make people laugh at that kid. Yeah. Corey Feldman's great in this, by the way. Yeah. I think. This should be the beginning of a great career for him. It should, it should. Because he's truly magical in this film. He's really nice. He's a, he's the sweet neighbor kid. He's great. He does a great job. Corey Feldman pulls a real bonehead move in knocking over the uh, the jar of paintbrushes that Billy has in his uh, 80s, 80s cool kid loft bedroom. And a uh, bunch of the water splashes on Gizmo, the Mogwai, and uh, a bunch of tribbles pop off of Gizmo's back. Yeah, it's a process that looks fairly painful. Yeah, the the Gizmo is really subjected to some some hard stuff in this movie. It's like a really cute character that kids would really connect with. So when it's going through pain, it's like really upsetting in a in a more visceral way than I think maybe they even intended. You can feel them pushing Gizmo out front as as a possible toy and mascot for the movie. Like he shot very close up, he shot very cute. And you're right, like subjecting him to pain is super painful to watch. These tribbles kind of like start growing as Gizmo recovers. And weirdly they're like totally transfixed by the tribbles and not trying to comfort Gizmo or like see if he's okay <laughs> or anything. Yeah. Like assumption is that Gizmo is is gonna bounce right back, but uh, these tri- these tribbles kind of like grow and grow and grow until they uh, they open up and um, we have five more Mogwai on our hands. This scene does a great job of 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 a real squick out, like a contemporary squick out in horror movies is wet hair, <laughs> and they really goo up these tribbles in a way that. It's especially squicky. Yeah. I wondered if they had a couple of of uh, Mogwai faces that were built 
like 2x the size of the ones that the actors appear on screen with because they go up for close-ups of these guys that like really fill the frame up and they look amazing like the the creature effects are unparalleled at this point in history i think i agree it's unfortunately i don't think it's aged well but if you watch it with an appreciation for keeping a movie in its time uh, i think it's really impressive when I saw that the dog was going to be a character in this movie, I was like, this is not necessarily the smartest filmmaking, because if you've got a real animal that's super expressive and charming the way this dog is, and then you're, you know, cutting from that to a fake character that's, you know, made out of polyurethane and fake hair and shit, like, it's going to bring into relief how bad the effects are. But I don't think that it suffers from that, really. I think that uh, I, I think that while while technology has moved on and they could do more and better with characters like this now, uh, it's still super impressive and doesn't doesn't really suffer from being you know up against the dog in this context. For all the times I've seen this movie, I hadn't really thought about it that way. This is a film that's totally confident in its creature work because they will cut back and forth between them. Yeah. So these new these new Mogwai are uh, kind of more mischievous than the uh, than the previous one, and so Billy uh, decides to uh, to do something that. Um, that uh, Stranger Things also <laughs> decides to do, which is uh, bring the high school science teacher in on this and <laughs> see what see what he can make of it. Here's another that guy in the film. It's Glenn Turman. He yeah. plays Mr. Hansen, who has been in a thousand other movies. And he plays really big, I think, in a way that is just a foot away from too big. He's great. Yeah, I don't quite know how you direct this character because the bigness of it is a real, it's another real tone shift where where you're like, oh God, like this is almost cartoonish, but not quite. And and somehow it's like exactly what this character needed to make these scenes interesting. He's a little arch in a way that I can't quite, like I don't know how we know that about him at any point in the film. But I get the sense that as a science teacher, he may not be on the up and up. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of like the the Big Lebowski, you know, the dude is the chillest character you've ever seen never be chill for a single moment in an entire movie. Right. Uh, Billy does a weird thing in this scene where he's like, hey, teach, check out this new animal I've got. I think it might be a great discovery. And he totally drops some water on the mogwai he brings. Yeah, that's not a great choice. <laughs> I don't think so either. I think he was told very explicitly by his dad uh, not to expose it to water. And, uh, and there he is, doing it for the sake of science. And he's, uh, yeah, he's already seen the consequences of that. He was so obsessed with the idea of whether or not he could, he didn't stop to think about whether or not he should. <laughs> and I think we should like say at this point that we're like maybe like 25% of the way through this movie, like... This is a real slow burn. This is a totally. Jaws we have not seen the shark yet situation. <laughs> yeah. And so just like it's like a a date between Billy and Phoebe Cates and like more interactions with Mr. Futterman who has 
more time more time to spend on how much he distrusts foreign things. Do you think it's strange that for an 80s horror movie that the love between Billy and Kate is so chaste? 80s horror movies are filled with fucking. Yeah. And and well, well they'd be doomed if they were fucking, I think. Yeah. Is, is the 80s horror movie logic. I guess that's that's how we know they're going to be survivors. Yeah. And uh, what Mr. Futterman explains is he like is being drunkenly persuaded not to drive himself home is that uh, is that foreign companies <laughs> put gremlins in their products so that they break down. That's the same gremlins brought down our planes in the big one. And that's why foreign things are bad and cheap and U.S. made things are good. Oh, Mr. Futterman, enjoy your Irish beer. <laughs> <laughs> you fucking asshole. <laughs> I mean, I think that the the real asshole uh, was that Judge Reinhold ordering a uh, vodka martini in that bar. Shaken, not stirred. Yeah, thanks, Gerald. <laughs> what a dick. Everyone knows you Look, I'm not going to I'm not going to drink shame anyone here, but I think at at certain dive bars you know what you should and should not drink. And I think a shaken, not stirred martini is the order of a dick at this particular bar. There are very few bars that can pull off a shaken martini. In fact, many fancy bars will dissuade you from ordering a a martini shaken because they don't know that you're an international spy and you need to keep your wits (laughs) about you by having your drink a little bit watery. Sure. Well, anyways, these... uh, Back at home, Billy is like hanging out with his uh, his new menagerie of uh, of Mogwai, <laughs> and uh, the new ones, the the ones that popped off of uh, of Gizmo's back, are begging to be fed. And uh, he looks over at the clock; it is not before midnight. So he goes goes down and finds a plate of bird meat in the fridge that he just <laughs> gives to them. And uh, we're in, intercutting between that and uh, and the one that was taken to the high school science lab, like stealing a sandwich by dragging it across the desk. I think the most unbelievable moment in this entire film is the idea that Lynn Peltzer, one of the great moms ever in movie history, does not cover the fried chicken before putting it in the fridge. Yeah, you got to cover that bird meat up unless you're unless you're like doing a dry brine and it hasn't been cooked yet. You got to cover that bird meat up. Yeah, but this is already cooked fried chicken. Yeah. What are you doing, Lynn? (laughs) Get it together. Get your shit together, Lynn. It Um, could be the kitchen PTSD of just being surrounded by things that could kill you. Like, maybe she just wants to get the hell out of that kitchen as soon as possible after dinner. So the next morning, um, the... The Mogwai have disappeared. Everybody but uh, everybody but Gizmo has disappeared, and they have been replaced by uh, alien xenomorph egg-looking pods. And uh, the one at the school is, is has you know the egg has formed within the bird cage that uh, that the uh, that uh, the science teacher was keeping it in. They're just all over the floor in uh, in Billy's room, and uh, and so that's not a great situation. Billy wakes up and his 
room over the garage apartment looks like LV-426. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> his mom is like, his mom and him, him are trying to figure out what the hell happened. He, after grabbing the frayed ends of his clock radio, sees that he has accidentally fed them after midnight. Mom, what's going on here? The Mogwai can tell time, Adam. <laughs> the Mogwai slash gremlins know a lot of things that you wouldn't think that they know about, Ben. Yeah, they, they really do. Um, so we've got like a middle 15 of this movie before the fun really starts where, you know, these these eggs are just hanging out and and they are, you know, the, the movie is pregnant with, with mayhem. But uh, <laughs> we we get to do like some checking in. Like for example, uh, Randall Peltzer has gone off to a a convention to try and move his his pocket bathroom or whatever. <laughs> but you know, if if you if you think if you uh, close your eyes and thinking about times of year when you would want to have a a big uh, convention, you know, like rent out the Las Vegas Conference Center and and uh, have tens of thousands of people come from all over the country and, and world to hawk their wares. It's Christmas Eve. <laughs> <laughs> like in any other household in America, Randall Pelitzer would be served divorce papers upon his return <laughs> yeah. to the homestead. This is not right. Another piece of conflict in this scene is like, God, I am so feeling Randall at this moment. Like, you go to a thing and think you're going to make a big splash with your invention and you realize that you're totally overmatched by everyone else who's there. Yeah. That's basically why he calls. Like he calls his wife and and he's like, "Lynn, I I think I've made a terrible mistake by going to this convention. No I one's mean- interested in my pocket bathroom. Everyone's <laughs> making like full-size robots here. <laughs> I made a terrible mistake." Yeah, I went to I went to the talent show. With a song that I wrote at home, not expecting to be going up against Sparkle Motion. I feel really bad for him. Like, I feel less bad about that he's away on Christmas Eve and more bad that he thought he was going to be seen as a conquering hero. And again, he is he is seen as the fool. Yeah. The uh, science teacher has to uh, has to kick all the kids out of out of science class the bell rings and that's like a saved by the bell moment but the mm-hmm. uh, but the egg is hatching and uh and so he blows in a call to billy just hatched i'll be right there and uh billy like starts to race home but uh yeah like the the mayhem has has commenced and uh the science teacher like comes very close to being the black guy that dies in the movie but is in fact just knocked out by being injected with a hypodermic needle. I think you and I read this scene differently. I feel like Mr. Hansen's the first kill on a murder spree. You think so? I I, I totally interpreted him as being passed out because of some like uh some like knockout drug. I thought the gremlin, you know, filled the hypodermic needle with air and then <laughs> Oh, gave him like an embolism? Yeah. <laughs> Jesus. That, you can you can kill a person that way. Poor Mr. Hansen dies face down after uh, after feeding the gremlin what looks to be like a Snickers bar. Yeah, these Mogwai have transformed, and they are they are not the fuzzy, cute little guys that that we've come to know and love. I guess it wouldn't be an '80s movie without a 
uh, an egregious death of a black character. <laughs> what may or may not be the death of a black character is followed by a R-rated killing spree that yeah. Ma Peltzer does in her own kitchen. Lynn Peltzer as Ellen Ripley, like running around the house, putting gremlins in blenders and fucking stabbing them and shit. <laughs> this scene is impossibly gory for a holiday film, for... A children's film, if you want to call it that. Yeah. There are four different deaths that happen here to these gremlins, Ben. Yeah. Let me let me enumerate them. There's the bowl mixer, uh, in, in which a gremlin goes in head first and then sprays entrails around the kitchen. A kitchen that was just cleaned. She then goes hand-to-hand combat with a kitchen knife and full-on, like, psycho stabs the next one. After... Like, this might be a good time to ask another question. Like, what's more monstrous, Ben? The amount of frosting on these gingerbread cookies or the way in which Lynn Peltzer murders this gremlin for eating them? <laughs> it's too much frosting, Ben. Yeah, that's, a, that's really much. excessive, Lynn. Um, Adam, if you could uh, if you could decorate your, your kitchen counter with a gremlin knife block, <laughs> <laughs> would you not? I think you'd have to. Yeah. That would be a great knife block. Why hasn't somebody come out with one of those? Now, when you're setting up a home kitchen, (laughs) one of the things you're going to want to do is have a nice big can of bug spray at arm's reach. (laughs) That way, you can take care of any offending ants on your countertop, spray your gremlin straight into the microwave, and then turn it up on the popcorn setting. We've set our microwave on a custom table we built by taking some beam wood that we had left over from the expansion, putting it through a mitered chop saw (laughs) to make four corners. And we put a nice coat of lacquer on top, so it's really quite attractive. And we did it for cheap. This scene is the realization of, like, what would happen if you put an animal inside a microwave? Yeah. It's so awful. (laughs) It's a great effect too. Like they really yeah. like figured out something that really blew up perfectly. Like Mrs. Peltzer is so brave. She is yeah. not taking any shit at all. No, like, she is. She is. She is defending the homestead. People are so freaked out by even a single gremlin, and she's in her kitchen, like going hand to hand combat with them. Yeah, she's, she's great. Uh, she has nearly solved the problem when one of them gets her gets her around the neck with some uh, some Christmas ribbon. And uh, she's she's about to uh, succumb to being throttled by this this guy when Billy rushes in, grabs like a baseball bat and knocks it off her back, square into the fireplace, and uh, we get to see it burn up. But the the like leader of the of the Gremlin gang, Stripe, the Gremlin who's extra bad because he has a mohawk, uh, <laughs> narrowly escapes. He's also extra bad because he monopolizes the arcade machine. Mm-hmm. No one likes that guy. Yeah, what a jerk. <laughs> um, so Billy takes his mom over to the neighbor's house. Uh, I guess their neighborhood is also their family doctor because it's a, a small town with an insular community. <laughs> and uh, he goes back to the house to like clean up, I guess, and see if, see if Gizmo is still there. And he finds Gizmo in the laundry chute. And he, he starts tracking the gremlin to the 
Kingston Falls YMCA. These gremlins have multiple innate abilities that just seem baked in to their intelligence. One of them is geography. Yeah. Unless Kingston Falls is so tiny that you can find your way to the YMCA pool very easily, like, he manages to go on a direct route there. Yeah, and they've gone from being a furry creature to kind of a reptilian creature, and it can't be easy for a reptile to, to get anywhere in that amount of snow, right? I sure thought so. Yeah. But Stripe sort of has an essential motivation, and that is to reproduce. The best way for him to do that is to jump into this pool at the YMCA. Yeah, they really got that pool boiling. It's a great practical effect. You get your green lights from inside the water. You get a ton of dry ice. You get some boilers going. Yeah. It looks great. It looks great and, like, really unnerving. Yeah. They layer on some uh, some creepy sound work here, too. Like, in addition to the visual, I think it, it's a really great package. It really horrifies Billy, who can do nothing else but just sort of back away from the pool in horror. Mm-hmm. We get, uh, Billy goes to, the, uh, goes to the sheriff and uh, begs the local police department to do something, anything about what's going on here. Um, and uh, they're they're too busy drinking while we're drinking. Little, uh, <laughs> little nog. How how are you doing on your nog, buddy? I'm almost down to the bottom. I could go for another, maybe. Oh, I'm almost down to the bottom on my second. Oh shit! I thought we came well, here to party, Adam. I've been drinking doubles though, so <laughs> I can. Uh, I, can I get, get yeah. I guess double. I guess the amount of booze you're putting in, you're probably about on pace with me. Let's drop in an interstitial here, and then uh, we'll have refreshed beverages. Let's Sounds go to Dory's, great. Ben. <laughs> so, uh, predictably, Billy gets laughed off by these cops. I kind of wish we'd gotten Brian Dennehy as the, uh, <laughs> as, as the cop here. Character actors! Who gives a fuck if we're fat? Yeah, we do get Jonathan Banks, who's a frequent Star Trek universe actor is the deputy yeah but we got a there's a ds9 episode in season one that he's in yeah but some dennehy gravitas here would, would it would have nice. it would have really put a nice a nice spin on this scene and uh so now uh the fun and games really begin because uh the futtermans are home trying to watch some uh some christmas time television programming and uh and they start to lose reception on their TV. I told you we should have got a Zenith. Mr. Futterman does the <laughs> does the the prelude to almost every suburban dad's death, which is still in his jammies and bathrobe, puts on a puts on an overcoat and goes outside to climb up a ladder. When you direct Dick Miller, you don't even have to say act like you are growing increasingly frustrated with your wife. Like, <laughs> frustrated with your wife is Dick Miller's resting state. Yeah, you you just introduce him to the character that's going to be the the actress <laughs> that's going to be playing his wife and then shoot in sequence and he will get increasingly frustrated. Mrs. Futterman, another like great gremlin's wife, like who is impossibly patient and nice. Shirley, will you quit messing with the TV? You have the thingy. Huh? Yeah, it doesn't mind that she's being treated like shit. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
Yeah, it, it, like the gremlins are at this point revealing themselves to be like not rampant animals, but like intelligent creatures with an agenda of mayhem and mischief. Like, like <laughs> everything they do from here on out is essentially a the hapless pl- prank of a drunken fraternity. This movie is like 15 years before Jurassic Park, and this is the introduction of like velociraptors can open doors. This is like <laughs> yeah. when you put a, a, a gremlin behind the wheel of a Kentucky harvester, that's velociraptor opening door in, in 1984. Yeah. And the thing is, when you look at a gremlin, it looks like they should be able to slice you into ribbons. Yeah. But instead, they, they choose the more fun path to death. Yeah, ev- everything is like the most cartoonish version. It's like like sending right. the lady up the uh, <laughs> up the uh, up the stair elevator at super high speeds. Do you feel like Mrs. Deagle got appropriate comeuppance? Hers is the most spectacular death, right? <laughs> it's so yeah. amazing. Yeah, like I think that there's like kind of. Often in a horror film, uh, an internal logic to which characters buy it and which ones don't, and it's very Greek, you know? It's like the the characters that are acting in defiance of the will of the gods Mm -hmm. uh, get suffering and and punishment, and and the ones that are righteous make it through. And that's sort of what's at play here, I guess, is that she's like a, a bad person that we're meant to hate. But man, it's it's uh it seems cruel, you know? Oh, I didn't think so at all. I laughed and laughed as she took that uh that stair machine for a spin and it shot her out of her top floor window. Also the editing of that scene, like they used the take of her of like the close up of her screaming with the wall whizzing by in the background yeah. so many times that it's like, is she in like a six floor house? <laughs> and then like like just as that thought crosses your mind, she flies out the second floor window. I love that they, I love that they took it from the police POV. Also, the policemen are in the car and they see Mrs. Deagle get spit out of the house, landing like feet up in the snow, and they're like, "Holy shit, Mrs. Deagle!" And then they look out the other side of the car, where like Kingston Falls' favorite Santa is being like taken down by three gremlins at once, <laughs> and fucking Jonathan Banks is like. Is so horrified by this. He's like, we got to get out of here, man. There's nothing we can do for our fa- our town's favorite Santa. Your firearms are useless against them! <laughs> He's like, hey, listen, I'm more than half in the bag from all those <laughs> eggnogs I, ate back at the, I drank back at the precinct. Let's get out of here. Let's be honest with ourselves. We are not in a position to fight crime. At least in Aliens, the law enforcement, quote unquote, had the had the will to kill the person who was being killed by the enemy. Yeah. Instead, they they just leave Dave Myers to become the third human kill of the <laughs> Gremlins. Yeah. I think I think that is awful police work. It's inhumane. Corey Feldman's having an okay time fighting the Gremlins. He's like uh he's like he's got like a wrist rocket and he's shooting them and then uses some giant uh some giant shears to cut the Christmas lights that one of them is dangling from. I was delighted that he wasn't electrocuted. <laughs> we also have an extendo scene. After after having been not in the movie for, I'm going to say like half an hour, 
Phoebe Cates is back and frantically tending bar for gremlins who are just there to drink and smoke. <laughs> like, like the premise of this scene at the beginning is that she's just trying to keep up with all the demand in the bar. <laughs> you look at this scene and like the customer service at Dory's is amazing. Like they will serve everyone. Yeah. Phoebe Cates is like pouring beers. She's lighting cigarettes. It also is totally emblematic of like the assimilation that the gremlins have done to the town. Yeah. Like they've not only taken it over, they have become townspeople in which I guess this is a world where they become patrons of the local yeah. <laughs> shops and bars. They're like in the corner doing bottle service. One of them is break dancing. I mean, they are also swinging from the chandeliers and, you know, and causing destruction and death. But they are, for the most part, doing the bar as a bar. They aren't doing much worse than Murray Futterman was a few scenes ago in his drunk, almost drive the combine scene home. You know, it's now a bar full of Futtermans. (laughs) Phoebe Cates maybe the smartest character in the movie because she discovers that the uh, the bright light thing works on the gremlins just as well as it works on the mogwai and she starts flashing Polaroid at at them to try and escape and she's she's working on it when a uh, gremlin comes in in a robber cap <laughs> with, with a revolver to hold the bar up <laughs> She runs out of uh, she runs out of flashes and it's looking touch and go there for a second. But Billy pulls up in his piece of shit German car just in time. Headlights shine through, so she runs out. She hops in. Billy to the rescue. Adam, this <laughs> this next scene is uh, is really something. <laughs> You're talking about uh, the story? The story. <laughs> so a couple times so far in the movie, uh, Kate has expressed to Billy that not she's not a, uh, a big fan of, of the Christmas. What, are you Hindu or something? Come on, Billy. She has personal reasons for that. <laughs> Tells this story about her father fa- failing to come home for Christmas. Days going by. Uh, where she and her mom can't sleep and the cops, you know, lose interest in the case because they can't find any clues. The house is freezing. She goes to light a fire and they discover that her dad attempted to slide down the chimney in a Santa costume and give them Christmas presents, but he slipped and broke his neck. And that's how I found out there was no Santa Claus. The... uh, It's like, it's like, this movie makes very little sense to begin with, but this scene is like such a, it is like, I don't know, it'd be like if you had like a, a ballroom dancing scene, like dropped right in the middle of the fourth act of Jurassic Park, you know, like, be like, what is this doing in here? Like, what? What is the takeaway from this? Like emotionally, what is this supposed to do for us that that this movie couldn't do without this insane scene? This is a scene that 
is too horrible to live <laughs> and yet and yet they totally choose to keep it like this this does not forward any story it does not develop kate's character any further no in a way other than being just incredibly graphic and awful there's a case to be made for the scene in that it is like a quiet like a catch your breath between the two characters that we like the most and and sometimes you do need that scene but yeah this like you gotta reshoot this scene (laughs) guys Kingston Falls is a very small town. How does everyone not know this story? <laughs> like, the idea that this comes as a surprise to Billy is maybe the biggest leap a viewer needs to make in a film about actual gremlins taking over a town. Also, this is a town where there is one thing about every character. Like, Mr. Futterman's sure. only thing is that he hates foreign made products. <laughs> <laughs> Like, his character is as developed as Kate's. Kate's thing is that her dad died on Christmas. That's her whole thing. It's, it is, like, it is so insane. It is so show-stoppingly crazy that it was written in the first place, much less shot. Like, like the fact that, you know, like, scripts don't, you don't write the first draft of a script and go into production. Like, scripts go through development. And, like, Steven Spielberg read these lines and was like, didn't have anything to say, you know? Joe Dante didn't say, like, oh, you know, like, we shot that scene today. I don't think it really worked. And I, I'm going to go back to the producers and see if we can get some money to, like, rewrite that part and just reshoot it. Because there's there's got to be a way to have those characters chilling out, like, take catching their breath and expressing feelings with each other without it being that specific story. I like it as an artifact. It's it's an amazing thing that it even exists. Too weird to live and too rare to die. A famous urban legend is referenced in the film in which Kate reveals in a speech that her father died at Christmas when he dressed as Santa Claus and broke his neck while climbing down the family's chimney. After the film was completed, the speech proved to be controversial and studio executives insisted upon its removal because they felt it was too ambiguous as to whether it was supposed to be funny or sad. Is there any ambiguity in this scene to you, Ben? Here's the thing. Joe Dante stubbornly refused to take the scene out, saying it represented the film as a whole, which had a combination of the horrific and the comedic. That is not a bad point. Like, it it is the tortured mixture of funny and and, uh, and sad and and emotionally fraught that this movie is. Yeah, Spielberg did not like the scene, but he viewed Gremlins as Dante's project and allowed him to keep it. Wow. Unbelievable. Fucking A. I mean, that scene goes down in, in history as like one of the most incongruous moments of uh, in cinema history. <laughs> I think more than more than the housewife killing all those Gremlins in her kitchen, that's the scene that makes this film not good for kids. That's the scene that sticks out in my mind as a kid as going, holy shit, like, ugh, like dad dying in the chimney was was the most horrible thought that this film evoked. I would also say, like, tonally, I think Phoebe Cates really kicks ass in this scene. Like, some, oh, yeah. somehow Phoebe Cates knew exactly how to play it. She totally does. She sort of large marges this movie. Yeah. Like, as... As incongruent as the Large Marge story is in Pee Wee, like her dad's story in this film has the same effect. Yeah. 
Well, the town is quiet because the gremlins have all decided to take in a movie at the uh, at the local movie palace, and uh, some of them have even figured out how to use like the rewind table and load up a reel from Snow White and the Seven Dwarves on the projector. As as a previous uh, projector professional in a movie theater, I found the scene insulting. <laughs> Insulting to projectionists everywhere. I don't. I don't know that I knew that you were a projectionist at some point, Adam. I was. It was one of my first jobs and my favorite job, and wow. a job that I had hoped at the time I would be able to uh, retire in as an old man. But it seems more and more unlikely that that would be a thing. But yeah, I I built and broke down films. I I showed them for an entire year. It was the best job I ever had. Man. It was. It was my USS Hood of jobs, Ben. <laughs> I loved it. Man, that's awesome. I uh, I have projected film, but only in a in an academic context. I have no idea what the uh, what the gig is like. I was a projectionist for the year 1997, <laughs> and uh, 1997, Ben, you will remember, is it was a banner year for film. I watched uh, I watched Titanic more times than I could count. I watched uh, that 007 movie with Pierce Brosnan, Goldeneye. I think that sure. was the Goldeneye year. Uh, Face Off was that year. I think Boogie Nights. Yeah, it was actually a great year to be a projectionist. Like those are those are movies of varying quality and Event taste. Event Horizon. Oh man, Anaconda. This is one of the reasons why Event Horizon is so scary for me, is because often. As a projectionist, you are one of the last people in the theater, and when you're spooling up that 10 or 10.30 or sometimes 11 o'clock screening of Event Horizon, <laughs> and you're in a dark theater, and maybe, you know, for instance, due to scheduling, that's the last movie to end for the night, and so you're sort of babysitting that projector until it ends, it's a, that's a bad way to end a night, man. Yeah. And when you do that for like a week straight, I think it changes you as a person. Mm, yeah, I could see that. In spite of that, truly uh, one of the great jobs I've ever had. And I think about it all the time. Miss yeah. those days. Yeah. These gremlins, though, <laughs> able to access the projection booth, which is really like a hardened target inside a movie theater. Yeah. Like the fact that they were able to get in there, very <laughs> difficult. They spool up Snow White. And, uh, and like they play it in order, which is another challenge. Like you can't just walk into a projection booth and, and know how to spool in <laughs> all the reels of Snow White together in order. They do that. They also the, know all the words to the songs. <laughs> my favorite line reading of maybe the whole movie is Zach Gilligan, like peeking into the theater and going, I'm watching Snow White and they love it. <laughs> like that's the surprising part <laughs> it's so great uh this serves to uh to feed into a murderous rage that it drives billy to by by turning on the gas going into this going into the the valve room Unspooling the gas, throwing a flaming rag into the uh, into the back of the theater, and blowing that thing up. This mother's gonna blow big. It's intense. It's a it's it's a veritable gremlin holocaust here at the at the movie theater. 
It's incredible they blew up the movie house set a year before they used it for Hill Valley. Like, it made me wonder how much rework they had to do to get the theater exterior back into shape for that. I mean, they're controlling any time they do an explosion. They probably have it set up so that they can do it more than one time in a given day of shooting or night And if of you're doing it on a set the way they're doing it on this back lot, then then you're you're basically made for reproduction. Yeah. I imagine the the ball of fire is like the most destructive part and they can just yeah. they can just reset, put a new marquee on or whatever and then go again. Stripe being the heavy of the film uh, manages to escape the inferno. Yeah, he's re- he's gotten uh he's gotten sub- distracted by the promise of candy beckoning from the drugstore across the street. There's a <laughs> neon sign that he is able to read and so he goes have we established that the gremlins have learned to read (laughs) he's reading at a level that's probably higher than the Corey feldman character at this point (laughs) so they think the day is saved and uh and it is not adam no um stripe goes into a montgomery ward which is like a less upscale sears yeah i guess montgomery ward probably doesn't really exist anymore does it I don't know. Man, wards.com. Is it a thing? <laughs> it's still a thing. How about that? They're selling PlayStation 4s and KitchenAid mixers and amazing. What's fun about this setup in a movie like this is because is you avail yourself of everything in a department store to use as a weapon. And that really affords you the chance to get creative <laughs> with attack and defense. And yeah. this is and this is something the film does really well here. Yeah, I mean they they rise to this challenge in the same way that Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure rises to this challenge. It's right. like, you know, like, oh, what can we do with the sporting goods section? What can we do with the garden section, you know? <laughs> this film does Kate a disservice throughout, but like they sort of stick Kate up in the attic in like the office manager section to sort of run the switchboard from here. But I think Kate is just as capable of like swinging a baseball bat and and fighting off a gremlin at this point. Yeah, she's been through some shit, but uh, it is up to Billy to like to like fend off the chainsaw attack with the baseball bat. And I guess the dad is like just getting back to town at this point, so he uh, he comes in and he he becomes a factor in the attempt to put the gremlin problem to bed once and for all. Gizmo gets in a remote control car that is steerable from its internal <laughs> steering wheel somehow. <laughs> this uh, this film does a little dropping of of hints throughout. Like the idea of Gizmo really enjoying pop culture is a thing that's introduced early on. He likes watching old movies on Billy's television. Ob- yeah, and- obviously. Corey Feldman dropping off that Christmas tree costumes at a pregnant moment. It's a plant that is totally paid off later. Uh, in watching this movie, Gizmo is able to steer his vehicle toward the climax of the film in which he jumps a snow shovel into the <laughs> home and garden section of this department store uh, where Stripe is about to dunk himself into the fountain and and reproduce into something that will start over this whole horrible situation in the town. It's not good. Uh, He crashes his car into a wall conveniently near the cord for the skylights bin. (laughs) Yeah. And so little Gizmo 
jumps up into the cords, pulls them down, opens the skylight, and exposes Stripe to the to the light in a vampiric, disgusting death scene that that takes him down into a quivering, wasted piece of jelly. This special effect was amazing. I thought so too. It's like a skeleton that we see lose structure before our eyes. And uh, I don't know how they do that. Like it must be like made out of something that they can pour water on and melt or something. I don't know. There are a few scenes in this movie where I feel like, oh yeah, I know how they did that. But this is one where I was completely stumped. The whole hard bone to soft bone deconstruction here, I thought looked great and so believable. The gremlin puppets themselves uh were like forty thousand dollars a piece like they were incredibly expensive to produce so like like the reason they're so good is that they are super duper expensive and high spec but uh the the melting the the skeleton is like a totally amazing special effect this film really had a great amount of self-awareness about what it could do and what it wasn't going to try to do. Like, you don't see Gizmo try to walk around. He doesn't walk from place to place. There's a scene where you see him crawling for, like, two seconds. Yeah. But they they do a great job in, like, sticking their... Sticking gremlins and mogwai into vehicles or having them stand and gesture. Like, there's never that scene that breaks the spell where they're like, oh, well, that's a that's a dumb puppet. That, <laughs> like, even, like, they'll stick them in a backpack or they'll, they'll cover the bottom so that the puppetry is obscured. Yeah, it's the, it's, it's the thing that, like, practical, practical effects understood for years that yeah. it took digital effects like two decades to figure out is don't do something with it that it's not good at it's so frustrating you see this all the time like by obscuring part of the whole you make it so much more believable and uh, it's really well sold and uh what a cool way to end a movie with a bunch of really impressive visual effects and it with like the most impressive visual effect i mean one of the most unbelievable parts of the this film to me as a newly minted dog owner (laughs) is the moment where stripe is reduced into a pool of of pulsing stripe juice (laughs) that barney doesn't try to eat it (laughs) or roll in it you have a dog and i have a dog there is no chance that barney wouldn't get up in that juice no yeah dogs are very interested in that juice Like a lot of alien visitation type films, this film ends in a news report depicting a sort of mass hysteria, sort of writing off the idea of the gremlins as as a thing that never happened. This is the postscript to the film, Ben. Yeah, and they're uh, they're sitting sitting around digesting that, and in walks the uh, the grandfather, Mister Wing, from the from the store at the beginning of the film. And he is there to like like say like you took this you took this Mogwai away under false pretenses. You can have your fucking money back. I figured out another way to pay rent presumably. Uh and and on top of all that, I am here to shame you for the crass and callous way your culture appropriates the gifts of nature. You do with Mokwai what your society has done with 
all of nature's gifts. You do not understand. You are not ready. Mr. Wing delivers the essential message of the film. So often people destroy the thing that they don't understand. And they don't even try to learn about the thing before doing it. And that's what Mr. Wing's trying to say here. Is like, so is your conjecture, Adam, that a character can't be a racist caricature and also have a, a good message? <laughs> no, that's not my message at all. I, I, guess, I guess it's unfair <laughs> to... Like, like, we can't defend what they do with Mr. Wing. What they do with Mr. Wing is indefensible, but... In painting him as an indefensible depiction, do you undo the good that Mr. Wing does and his message at the end? No, I don't think you do. You do. have to take him or leave him. I think I th- I think that the like to the extent that this movie has a message at all, which I think it's arguable <laughs> that it doesn't. Uh, We're really trying to find one. <laughs> it is that it is that like this was the inevitable result of like white Americans being careless with with a natural phenomenon and it and it coming back to bite them on the ass <laughs> like that happened whether or not Mr. Wing comes in at the end to like explicitly say it out loud you know yeah I don't know I just like like I don't know how you uh how you rewrite his scenes to make it less offensive or whatever but but yeah, like I don't think that you lose that message. You just lose the explicitness of it. I guess what I'm trying to say is it's satisfying to me that Mr. Wing delivers his condescension at the end as sort of the button on the movie. Right. Because he is depicted the way that he is. Like I find it shocking that they sure. would allow that. You know, in a film that is full of awkward depictions of race and class that they would uh, that they would give Mr. Wing the gavel here that he's the he's the like high status character that is passing judgment on everybody else at the end it doesn't forgive anything but i think it helps is that fair to say okay <laughs> uh, look i'm pro mr wing all right no one's saying i'm i'm anti wing here and where's his grandson yeah that kid's that kid's probably grounded. Mr. Wing has somehow found his way from Chinatown to uh to Kingston Falls. The the mystery of that travel is completely untold. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it it appears that he did it on foot. Yeah. <laughs> With absolutely no help from his grandson. Yeah. I think if you're a, if you're an old and you're going to travel for the first time in many years, I think you're going to need a grandson to help you navigate the uh, the mass transit system. Sure. Did you like this episode, Adam? I love this movie, Ben. <laughs> I, there is no reason to love it, too. It is... It is awful in a lot of places, but you know, much like the depiction of Mr. Wing, it 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 has so many great counterpoints to its own awfulness. I return to it every year. I only watch it once a year. It has become uh, the the main 
holiday tradition that my wife and I have is watching Gremlins on Christmas <laughs> Eve while I make a uh, I make a tomato bisque and grilled cheese sandwich dinner for us. Oh, that's the thing that we do, and it's got sentimental value to me. It's a totally flawed movie, but fuck, man, it's it's 1984. It's uh, it's a holiday film unlike any other holiday film, and that's why I return to it every year. How about you, Ben? Uh, I really liked it. Yeah, I'm I'm glad that I uh, I'm glad that I have this cultural reference now because right it was like it was like Gremlins and Goonies are the two that when I mention that I haven't seen it it really floors people and yeah. uh, uh, I I enjoyed watching it. I mean, uh, it like the, there's parts of it that are amazing and there's parts of it that don't really hold up that well but uh overall like i i I like uh i like a movie that is fun and doesn't like feel the need to justify the fun that it's having that much yeah it's it's not making excuses for the fun (laughs) and like the second you see the the gremlins like essentially doing hapless pranks rather than being like a like they are not xenomorphs you know they are not there to like eat and reproduce they're there to be mischievous and silly and uh yeah they're 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 there to personify the thing that futterman describes like the thing that just fucks with your life and frustrates you (laughs) yeah yeah, so uh, so so that uh, like once that is revealed, it's like it, that really won me over for this movie. It's flawed, but it's so nihilist that you almost can't judge it on a normal scale. Yeah. Did you find yourself a drunk Shimoda in this movie? Drunk Shimoda. I'm gonna give my drunk Shimoda to Randy Peltzer, and the reason. The specific reason, I mean, I think he does a bunch of things that are Shimoda-worthy, but the the specific one that I want to give him this citation for is um, as he is leaving the shop, he gets the, like, three rules of Gremlins or of uh, the three rules of Mogwai from uh, from the little kid and really is really blasé about it and really does not appear to give two shits about what this little kid is telling him but then (laughs) when he gives it to billy it is like the most important thing like he has come 180 degrees on the issue of the three rules and to the extent that i was like (laughs) he has had a bad experience w slash r slash t breaking one or all of these rules already like that's the only conclusion you can draw from how he plays the the reading the ceremonial reading of the rules. Uh, do you have a drunk Shimoda, Adam? My Shimoda is rocking Ricky Rialto. <laughs> like he sort of serves as the K Billy Super Sounds of the '70s figure in a thing that I think Reservoir Dogs totally cops. Yeah, rocking Ricky sounds like he eats it on the radio. I think uh, Do the Right Thing also stole this. Right. He's on the radio, and he's doing a live song break, and he's like, people are calling the station talking about about these gremlins. I'm here to tell you, this is Christmas time, guys. This isn't Halloween. I'm getting pretty sick of it. At which point, the door to the recording booth opens, 
and we hear Rock and Ricky get taken down by gremlins. <laughs> his his last words being, "Hey, do not Rock and Ricky man." <laughs> I love that moment. Yeah. Uh, well, that will just about wrap up our special holiday episode this year, Ben. I'm really glad I got to share one of my favorite movies with you, and that uh, you got to see it for the first time. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. Thank you so much to the kind, kind folks who uh, support our our show on a monthly basis. We uh, we can't thank you enough because it has uh, really changed both of our lives this year. That uh, that we could like actually kind of throw ourselves into this project and, and make it like the greatest thing we can we can possibly make it right it's that sort of thing that makes it possible for us to have the the time and ability to make special episodes like this like yeah. I personally I I want to do as many weird episodes as we can do Ben I think yeah. I think the format of Ben and Adam cracking wise about uh, X is, is pretty <laughs> exportable at this point <laughs> And I'm looking forward to experiencing that with you uh, in all of its forms. Well, I, uh, I am really glad that you invited me to do this episode with you, Adam. And uh, to everybody listening, uh, whatever holiday you celebrate around this time of year, uh, we wish you the best and we, uh, we really appreciate everything. And uh, you know, all the best to you and yours. It's been, it's been a tough year and we... Hope that this makes it a little tiny bit brighter. Yeah, that's the whole idea. Uh, Thanks a lot for everything, guys. We will see you in the new year. Later. Maximumfun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Listener supported.